Welcome to Posterity Podcast, a discussion of unusual subjects that touch the lives of everyday people from a Christian worldview. This is Mike Carmen once again sitting alongside Jay Carmen, otherwise known as the Overlords of the UFO, coming to you from cul-de-sacs in two mysteriously undisclosed locations in Ohio and Tennessee via the internet. For this podcast episode, we're going to jump right into Richard Dolan's book, UFOs in the National Security State, Chapter 4. So here we go. Well, you want to, yeah, it is good stuff. You want me to pick up with Chapter 4 here? Go ahead. Okay. You know, we've talked, Mike and I have talked about, in the chapters that we've covered up to this point, the Chapter 1, which we dealt with a little bit last week, or in our last podcast, excuse me, is kind of the prelude to 1947, and then Chapter 2 is 1947 and that is when the whole ufo thing kind of comes out in the general public hits the news and that's because of the uh roswell crash and because of uh, kenneth arnold's sightings those two things in particular not those are not the only things but kenneth arnold's sightings at mount rainier in washington now and then of course chapter three how the problem is being managed in 1948 to 51 chapter four though, is a crisis and containment section that Dolan, he labels it as that, and it really deals with 1952 and 1953, those two years in particular. And he identifies at the start of Chapter 4 that 1952, next to the launch year of 1947, is actually uh, a kind of the rival to 1952 rivals 1947 as being the great year, so to speak, and uh, with with good good reason to say that because there are some things that take place in uh, in and around Washington D.C. Right. There are some changes to how military institutions are handling, surveying, and investigating and handling the problem, things like that. So I'm going to read a couple of excerpts here to kind of identify how he's approaching the subject. He says, and this is on page 97. He says that the measures undertaken in 1952 created a policy that remained relatively unchanged for more than 10 years until another nationwide UFO wave that occurs in the mid-1960s, which is, of course, what I remember as a kid. Right. Uh, that There was a lot of discussion at the time. So he records a lot of military-based sightings or information regarding base sightings. He also notes that in 1952, Project Sign had prior to that become Project Grudge. It was still under... Edward Ruppelt, uh, his direction. And under Ruppelt, Project Grudge becomes kind of a respectable thing. It went from being a mere project, so to speak, within a group to its own separate organization under the title the Area Phenomena Group. But by the end of March in 1952, it actually becomes Project Blue Book, which, of course, was based in Dayton, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, So there's a change, and we're no longer dealing with Project Sign. We're no longer dealing with Project Grudge. It's now called Project Blue Book. And I'm just going to highlight a a few things here. In April of 1952, Blue Book received 99 reports. It was a very busy time, but also that during that time that there were a lot of reports which he documents this. He said there were a lot of reports that were turned into the military, but not all of them made it into Project Blue Book's files. Right. And there were also some reports, of course, that would have been general media coverage, but those did not necessarily make it in either. So although Blue Book 
covers 99 reports, investigates those. There were others that were out there that were not documented. Later on in May, it goes from 49 reports to 79 reports. There was a lot of press coverage of UFO reports at the, as we move through that year. The press coverage increases, which that doesn't really make anybody happy because now the general public is talking about it as much or more than the military is because, you know, they're responsible for identifying these kind of things. So 99, I'm sorry, in, in April it was 99 reports. In May it was 79. So there's actually a decrease in reports. But in June it jumps. We go to 149 documented reports. And Rupert's staff at Blue Book has increased. He's now got four officers. And sometimes you'll see pictures of these guys. These people, not these guys, these people associated. Right. There were with ladies the in the group, yeah. Yeah, there were. He had four officers, two airmen, and two civilians that were on his pre- his permanent staff. So he has eight mm-hmm. people on his permanent staff. He also had a number of scientists, including J. Allen Hynek. Mm-hmm. His prominence in the UFO community as a proponent of interplanetary, the interplanetary hypothesis. And the continuing of investigation, either though, even though at the time when he's brought into Blue Book, he's brought in under Blue Book's policies, which were explain or explain away. And right. he becomes a part of a group that he becomes, a, he splinters off from that and says, no, you can't just explain away all of this. But that happens later on. Also at the Pentagon, Major Dewey Fournette is now the full-time Project Blue Book liaison. So this is now a major organization, let's say, assigned to the UFO problem. And that's just moving in through the first six months of 1952. By 19, or excuse me, by July of that month, however, this has kind of reached a crisis perspective because there are two opinions about what to do about the UFO problem. One group, and this is from Rupert's perspective, he's not just talking about Blue Book, but he's talking about the community, the military community, the government community, the intelligence community, the general population. There are split opinions. One group, so to speak, with all of this is dead serious about the situation. And there are people from a government and military and intelligence perspective who want a policy that starts from the assumption, actually, and this is under, this is Rupert's opinion. They start from the assumption that UFOs were interplanetary. That's the first thing. And then second, that there needs to be a clampdown on the release of information. This group, according to Rupert, thought that security classification of the project should go to top secret. Yes. Yeah, he wants it. He wants it brought up and then verify. They're uh, brought up as top secret, which would therefore limit the amount of information that was released to the public. And uh, that that, in his opinion, that actually is something that was very much reflected in the Pentagon. Uh, that month of July, let's see, the Air Technical, what did I say, the Air Technical Intelligence Center, which I believe actually supervised, they were, I think those were Rupert's bosses, even though he was tied to Blue Book, they were tied as well. The ATIC received 356 reports in the month of July, and that the unknowns in those reports were running higher because Rupert maintained that with Blue Book, there were always about 20% that were unidentified. But the ATIC statistics remained at 40% unidentified, unknowns, okay? 
And I want to read just an excerpt here about one key, if one key UFO sighting from the month of July, and it's actually regarded as a major sighting report even in modern times, although we, most people don't know about it now. Right. This occurred in Tremont, Trim, excuse me, I can't say that right, Tremonton, Utah, July the 2nd. And I'm going to just quote here from his book. Delbert C. Newhouse was a warrant officer and a veteran naval aviation photographer. He owned a 16-millimeter Bell & Howell movie camera. While out driving with his family, he noticed unusual objects in the sky, and this is in Utah, unusual objects in the sky, and he got out of the vehicle with his camera, which had a telephoto lens. The objects were originally at close range, large, disc-shaped, and brightly lighted, and shaped like two saucers, one inverted on top of the other. Now, notice that's a different description than, say, uh, uh, Kenneth Arnold gave, where they were labeled right. flying saucers, but he never said they looked like saucers. He right. just said they behaved like a saucer skipping across the water. But in this case, they're shaped like two saucers, one inverted on top of the other, according to the report. By the time he had the camera ready, they were directly overhead, but had receded quite a bit from their original position. He shot about 75 seconds worth of color film that captured what seemed to be 12 to 14 shiny points of light maneuvering at high speed. He claimed steadfastly that he held his camera steady. In other words, the motion in the picture is not because of camera shake. It's because the objects were actually moving. The film went to ATIC and Blue Book. Ruppelt told Fournet, Fournet, excuse me, in Washington about it. And Fournet, who is, of course, the Blue Book liaison with the military, arranged for the original film to be shown to a group of high-ranking intelligence officers. It then arrived at the Air Force's Photo Reconnaissance Laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. A few weeks later, this lab told Ruppelt that we don't know what they are. Now, he's, the lab is reporting to Blue Book. We don't know what they are, but they aren't airplanes or balloons, and we don't think they are birds. The complete Air Force investigation of the Utah film lasted for months. Although the analysts tried to identify the objects as something conventional, they were unable to do so except to suggest possible birds. But again, the photo reconnaissance lab, photo reconnaissance lab at Wright-Patterson said, we don't think they're birds. The Navy soon asked, and again, keep in mind, there's two branches of the military investigating, the Navy and the Air Force. Right. The Navy soon asked for the Utah film. Specialists at the U.S. Navy Photographic Laboratory in Anacosta, Maryland, spent two months and nearly 1,000 man hours studying it frame by frame. Again, he took 75 seconds of film footage. They determined that if the objects were as much as five miles distant, they would have been moving at around 3,700 miles per hour. If they were only one mile distance, they were traveling at 472 miles per hour. By the way, that's only slightly faster than the air, than the uh, P-51, the Mustang. I looked that up while we were talking. It had a top, a top recorded airspeed of 437 miles an hour, I think it was. So if they were only a mile away, then they were 400, moving at 472 miles per hour. They ruled out natural phenomena and concluded that the objects were not reflecting sunlight. This is interesting, but instead were internally lighted spheres. 
Moreover, the lab concluded that changes in the light's intensity, among other things, eliminates the possibility that the images were aircraft or birds. The objects, they said, were intelligently controlled vehicles of some kind, unknown objects under intelligent control. This clearly implied, but did not explicitly state, because who would, a non-human extraterrestrial answer. I always think it's interesting, from my perspective, we were already experimenting with remote control vehicles during the Second World War. So, and there was some speculation that the Nazi, what the pilots encountered with Foo Fighters were remotely controlled objects, not necessarily objects that contained a human or a non-human right. uh, pilot. So, but, you know, at this time, not a lot of people knew we were experimenting with remote control. So, the unknown objects were under intelligent control. This clearly implied, but did not explicitly state, a non-human extraterrestrial answer. Newhouse's film became a featured piece of UFO evidence later on for the CIA-sponsored Robertson panel that took place in January of 1953. I have made myself a note to begin looking for these films and see if they're out there and yeah. papers that are mentioned in this book to see if they actually exist somewhere and are correctly labeled as being truthfully what they are. Like, for example, on page 98, I put, look for a copy of this Air Force-sponsored article titled, Have We Visitors from Space? Which was evidently written with influence from higher-ups at the Pentagon that the most likely conclusion was that the that the extraterrestrial hypothesis was the thing to explain UFOs. So right. I just throw that in there. I, I'll have to make a note of that film and see if that can be found as well. Right. It would be nice to have a little appendix library of our own of these yeah. articles and films yeah. and so forth. Yeah, documents. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. Because we don't know. I mean. Dolan does a good job of identifying source documents, does a great job of identifying source documents. He does a great job of identifying the people who wrote the documents or the people who were interviewed and what was going on um, at the time. Other researchers since Dolan do indicate that there were research into some other projects being conducted by our own military during and after the Second World War, immediately following the Second World War and, and going forward during the Cold War. There were a lot of things under the development. They were under R&D, research and development. There were things out there that were not being documented very well at the time and have since probably popped up in other documentation. So I think where he moves automatically to an extraterrestrial hypothesis as an implied solution or an implied right. answer He's 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 not wrong in thinking that that is in concluding that that is exactly maybe what was being implied or that it was something that people who read those reports would automatically jump to. I don't automatically accept it as the correct hypothesis because there were other things that were under development at the time. So it's hard to know exactly 
what's going on here. But to take that as given the time, he wouldn't necessarily have been incorrect in that, that that's how that, that was being interpreted. Right. But, I, but I want to point out, actually, in 1952, and this actually, this is one, you know, there are some dates I just don't remember. You know, I know 1947, Roswell, got it. 1952, I, I remember that because that was the year of the Washington, D.C. sightings. And that's something that I was not born yet. Not yet, you know. But the the stories that came out of that time, I'm just aware of. So I want to highlight a couple of things in 1952 that Dolan points out here. That Washington, D.C., and we're talking about Washington, not state, but Washington, D.C., home of the nation's capital, had already been the scene of some UFO activity. But there are two weekends in 1952 that went before anything, went far beyond anything that had come up up to that point. And they are among the most compelling and dramatic UFO sightings in modern America history. And he and he he says he he says this that remain despite any official pretense to the contrary unsolved. Now he publishes this book in copyright 2002 and copyright 2000. Uh, yeah, the original book came out in 2000, so 22 years ago. This particular volume it was republished in 2020, or excuse me, 2002. But the original copyright was 2000. So. At that time, the time that he concludes, finishes the writing, publishes the book, he has to base that on the documents that are available. Right. So here we go. According and it, But I just want to point that out, that despite any official pretense to the contrary, that at the time of this publication, these, in his opinion, remain unsolved. So page 104 at the bottom. At 11.40 p.m., very late at night, had I been bored, I would have been asleep. 11.40 p.m., July 19th, the uh -huh. radar at Washington National Airport picked up a formation of seven objects near Andrews Air Force Base, moving along at a leisurely pace of 100 to 130 miles per hour. Before long, two of the object, two of the objects, two of the seven, suddenly accelerated and vanished off the scope within seconds. They didn't just disappear; they accelerated. Doubt they were able to determine that one of them apparently reached. 7,000 miles per hour. <laughs> that would get my attention. Ludicrous this, speed. <laughs> yeah, ludicrous speed. That's right. This got the attention of several controllers. In other words, it wasn't just one radar controller seeing this. This got the attention of several controllers, especially when they learned that a second radar at the airport, as well as the radar at Andrews Air Force Base, also picked up the objects. For six hours, between eight and 10 UFOs were tracked on radar. So start tracked on radar. So starting at 11:40, and for six hours afterward, they're tracking eight to ten unidentified flying objects. The senior air traffic controller for the CAA is looking to see here if he identifies that acronym in that paragraph. He doesn't. The senior tra air traffic controller for the CAA. Harry Barnes knew immediately that a very strange situation existed. And this is, they're quoting his opinion. The movements were completely radical compared to those of ordinary aircraft. They followed no set course and were not in any formation. And we only seemed to be able to track them for about three miles at a time or six hours for six hours. They were at least 10 unidentifiable objects moving above 
Washington. This is above Washington, D.C. They were not ordinary aircraft. I can safely deduce that they performed gyrations which no known aircraft could perform. Several times, at least two of the radar stations displayed the same targets simultaneously. But the phenomenon was not restricted to radar tracking. This is interesting. Several Capital Airlines pilots saw the objects visually as mm. orange lights in the same area that radar indicated they should be. Right. And just where were they? Dolan says, over the White House and the Capitol building. And the Capitol building, yeah. yeah. A, a radar visual sighting of 8 to 10 UFOs over such highly restricted airspace is certainly caused to send a few jet interceptors, and this is exactly what happened. And by the way, in the 50s, we did have jet interceptors. Right. But by the time the interceptors arrived, shortly before dawn, it was too late. The objects were gone. The sighting made headlines the next day. And yet, according to Ruppelt, who was with Blue Book, nobody bothered to tell Air Force Intelligence about the sighting. At least nobody bothered to tell ATIC, which by now was receiving about 30, this is interesting, 30 UFO reports per day. So the Air Technical Intelligence Center was getting 30 reports a day, but nobody bothered to tell them or Project Blue Book. Uh, Project Blue Book. When Ruppelt arrived in Washington to investigate, he learned that President Truman was personally interested in the affair and he wanted and that Truman wanted a full investigation. That was good news for Ruppelt, except that all the time he was in Washington, this is funny, Ruppelt could not obtain a military vehicle to get around down. And he had to use a bus. Well, then, who then did Truman want to do this full investigation, Dolan says? It clearly was not. Right. I, I remember reading that, that he had to use a bus. Yeah. Yeah. We want you <laughs> to investigate. He a military vehicle to do his right. job. Yeah. yeah. We want you to investigate. But, oh, by the way, sorry, we don't have a driver or a vehicle. You got to take the bus. Now, all of that, those occurred, the original sighting occurred on July the 19th. In the weeks that followed, there were sightings at a, there were sightings continued at an intense pace around the country. Several were over military bases, and dozens of new reports reached Blue Book every day um, from all around. Then we get to July 29th, same year, 1952, uh, 4 p.m., the Air Force held its longest and lo largest and longest press conference since the end of World War II. Major General John Samford, who was director of Air Force Intelligence, led the conference. He was accompanied, this is interesting, by General yeah. Roger Ramey, the man who five years earlier had ended spocu speculation. I've been watching too much Star Trek. Speculation about the Roswell crash because he was the one who said, oh, it's a weather balloon. Okay. Right. Uh, Ramey who relied on a theory put forward by Donald Menzel, who was a, a, a UFO debunker. He never at any time did he right. give any credence to UFO reports as other than things that could be explained away. Menzel's theory was that there was a temperature inversion. And so Sanford explained that the recent UFO sightings over Washington had been caused by weather phenomena. Uh, of course, Sanford was not a scientist. He relied on the reports of others. It's interesting to note that at the who at the the number of people who were at this press conference attending uh, that day were also there 
but silent were three men who had been in the air traffic, air route traffic control uh, radar room at Washington National Airport during the event. Uh, he identifies them. One was a, and I won't mention their names here, one was a PR officer. One was a Navy electronics expert assigned to the Air Force. And let's see. Is this the is this the paragraph where Albert Chop shows up? Yeah, it's where Albert Chop shows up. Um, uh, you know, Albert Chop or Al Chop shows up in radio programs from that era on this subject. And he was a PR officer. And I can't remember if he is the host uh, or if he's being interviewed. But if you were to go to the Internet Archive and download the Faded Discs collection that was put together, there are several different categories, and I could not tell you how many MP3s are in this collection. But there are some radio programs from the 50s and 60s that I believe are hosted by someone named Al Chop. And I wonder if, if that's the same guy. It could be. He yeah. was the he was a he was a PR officer. Let's see here. He was in the control room that night. Got the mm. radar room that night. He was a uh, PR officer. Also, uh, Major Dewey Fournette Jr. was there. Right. And Lieutenant Holcomb, I guess I am mentioning names, who was a Navy electronics expert assigned to the Air Force. The, all of these three rejected the temperature inversion explanation. They came out and said, no, that's not right. And he's, their, yeah, their argument is... Um, Wait a minute. So those guys rejected the temperature inversion argument. Yeah, these three rejected. Yeah. Oh, okay. They oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. They said it's not. Uh, but in, and despite that, of course, Sanford says, you know, we're going to continue investigating. He says there remained a percentage of all UFO reports received by the Air Force, about twenty percent that have are from credible observers of relatively incredible things. We keep on being concerned about those, the 20% that are unexplained. Of course, present act course of action is to continue on this problem, this Sanford says, with the best of our ability, giving it the attention that we feel it very definitely warrants. We will give it adequate attention, but not frantic attention. That's, right. his, that's his comments. Yeah. So... 15 years after this temperature inversion explanation is put forth in 1952, the Condon Committee agrees with it. Uh, Gordon Thayer, uh, excuse me, Gordon Thayer, who's with the Condon Committee, agrees with it. He believed that the visual sightings were caused by meteors, scintillating stars. So you've got you've got Sanford who said it's due to weather phenomenon, and he's relying on Menzel's theory of temperature inversion. You've got Thayer who says... Um, well, these were probably meteors, scintillating stars, but an atmospheric physicist by the name of James McDonald disagreed. He argued that Thayer's data did not support that conclusion. Michael Wertheimer, who was a psychologist with the Condon Committee, committee later interviewed the radar operators. And he nearly, he says nearly all disagreed with the temperature inversion explanation. They maintained this is the perspective. This, this is interesting. They maintain that experienced operators, radar operators, had no trouble identifying inversions. And later on, years after that, this is the Condon Committee was 15 years later, years after the Condon Committee, an Air Force, official Air Force scientific report discredited 
temperature inversion explanations, but that report was never given any any publicity. So you have all this stuff going on over Washington, Washington that ended up being covered by the news. People were justifiably alarmed. And the radar operators had no idea what was going on. Um, but it's just kind of swept away, put under the yeah. rug. It's not going to get frantic attention. Right. You know, in other words, we're not, we're concerned about it, but we're not overly concerned about it. Later on, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, you know, it's just like, you know, what Dolan has said in the past, there's the truth and then there's the official truth. Right, right. It's interesting to note that this comes out of the... Uh, the, this briefing has presented this report to the news media. It comes out on July the 29th. And at the same time, an FBI memorandum dated also July 29th discussed a classified briefing about UFOs given by Commander Randall Boyd of Air Intelligence, the Air Intelligence Estimates Division. According to the memo, the Air Force, this is interesting, had failed to arrive at any satisfactory conclusion regarding UFOs. Boyd noted that reports were being received from all parts of the United States as well as distant parts of the world. And he stated that while it was possible there could be some as yet unknown natural phenomenon causing these sightings, he considered, Boyd considered, the extraterrestrial, I said it right this time, the extraterrestrial explanation as possible. He concluded that, and this is a quote, the objects sighted may possibly be from another planet, but that at the present time there is nothing to substantiate this theory, but the possibility is not being overlooked. He stated that air intelligence is fairly certain that these objects are not ships or missiles from another nation in this world. So it's not terrestrial ships or missiles. It may be explained by a natural phenomenon, but they don't know what that is, and that they still had to consider the possibility that it could be extraterrestrial. He also confirmed that air intelligence had essentially ruled out foreign, especially Soviet technology, as an explanation. It, it, isn't it really a, I'm not sure what to call this, but a fascinating part of our fallen human nature that when we can't fully explain something so that we know exactly what it is we've seen or experienced, when we can't fully explain something, it has to be explained away. Right. Regardless of whether con the conclusion meets the facts or not. Yeah. It has exactly. to fit a preconceived belief because it can't fully be explained for what it is. That's uh, it's terrible and fascinating. Yeah, at the same yeah it is at, at the same time. I want to point out two more things from this chapter. And that is that as you get closer to the end of the year, um, well, Dolan, well, let me just say, first of all, Dolan says, and I'm quoting from page 111, by 1952, the historical documentation, as well as the logic of the situation, pointed to one of two possibilities. This is according to, uh, let's see, according to Boyd's thinking, and Dolan would he would argue that Boyd did not have all the answers. That's that's certainly plausible, very likely actually. He says by 1952, the historical documentation as well as the logic of the situation pointed to one of two possibilities. 
UFOs were either American or they were alien. Now, Boyd says it might be a natural phenomenon, something that's causing us to see these things, but he didn't know what that was. They were not rejecting an ET hypothesis, but they had concluded that it wasn't uh, foreign technology. They did not believe that it was the Russians or anybody else. But, and so the conclusion here is that either what's being cited is American developmental technology or it's alien. They're not Soviet, they're not natural. Within the military intelligence community, many understood this as a possibility. Boyd, in his presentation, did not examine the possibility that UFOs were a domestic project, but could they have been? Certainly, according to Dolan, the door is open to that. But there are major problems with that explanation. First, there is no documentation linking UFOs to American technology. At that time, that was probably correct. There was nothing that they could put their finger on. Second, there is no evidence in the history of technology. And there's truth to that, too. In In the documentation of American air technology, it doesn't show up. That is the known American technology from the 1940s through at least the 60s does not suggest UFO reports. Third, the behavior of UFOs, including airspace violations and repeated repeated attempts at intercept by our jets and planes at the time, does not suggest a domestic project. And it's interesting to note, he also points out the history of American warfare doesn't point to the pot, doesn't point to developmental technology over U.S. airspace, our own developmental tech over airspace, and then launching our own interceptors. You know, warfare up to that point, it didn't operate in that way. Doesn't mean it wasn't operating in that way now, but then, but it says there's no history of that. The last couple of things here from that chapter, from chapter four, uh, Blue Book and ATIC, Events are kind of coming to a close. By December of 1952, Blue Book was down to about 30 UFO reports a month. Now, keep in mind, there was a strong push at the time to, we don't talk about this because it's just silly, you know. Yeah. yeah. So people weren't calling them in necessarily, or, or maybe they weren't being seen, but 30 UFO reports a month, but the unknowns were still running at 20%. Uh, there are some other memos and the CIA kind of gets involved. We get to the end of 1952 and the beginning of 1953, and we have what's called the development of the Robertson panel. The, the Robertson Robert- panel. Yeah, this was under that the last. That really deserves a, a show of its own. It does. And <laughs> and actually, he covers a lot of the information about the Robertson panel in this chapter, and I'm just kind of summarizing. It convened officially during the end of the Truman administration. Truman was president for eight years. It officially convened from uh, starting January 14th uh, of 1953, and it ran through the 18th. So it was a f- five days. Conv- starts on a Wednesday, ends on a Sunday. It was the last matter of any consequence in Truman's eight years in the White House. Eisenhower was sworn in as president two days later on Tuesday, January 20th. The panel's significance is not that it merely served, and this is true, it was, its purpose was to debunk UFOs. All researchers acknowledge that. But it was a final, he says, this was a final insurance policy at the end of 1952 and the start of 1953 to steer the UFO issue away from the wrong people, to keep it from being investigated by too many individuals and departments 
in the Eisenhower presidency. Yeah. So they're trying to wrap things up under the Truman administration and keep things away from the Eisenhower administration. The Robertson panel was the Truman administration's final bit of house clean. Now, I'm not going to, I'm going to go into all the details regarding that. You know what uh, we should do is we should we should dedicate a whole show to that. To the Robertson panel, yeah, yeah because it because did. I, I actually have, um, he mentions, he mentions the book by Fawcett and Greenwood um, in his discussion here. And I actually have that book and I've never read it. Right. Yeah. It's, it, that, it's that, that, would, that would be worthwhile doing an entire discussion on the Robertson. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Because we hear more about Blue Book and the Condon Committee. Most people aren't aware or weren't aware of Project Sign or Project Grudge. We hear right. Blue Book is the one that got all the attention. And then, of course, the Condon Committee uh, years later. But the panel, the Robertson panel is a pivotal point in the documentation and the history of the UFO. Now we call it UAP phenomenon. This is a quote, a brief quote from the panel report, uh, which, of course, is January. We're now looking at January 1953. The lack of sound data in the great majority of cases. That's a blanket term, sound data. The lack of sound data in the great majority of cases. And concluded, the report concluded that most sightings could be reasonably explained if more data were available. In other words, there's not a lot of sound data, and we're confident it could be reasonably explained if there were more data available. And this was part of the UAP report. This was, yes, yes, that comes up again in the UAP report. Yeah, Yeah. right. Trying to solve, according to the Robertson panel, trying to solve every sighting would be a great waste of effort. The panel concluded that UFOs presented no evidence of a direct threat to national security, in spite of, and we're not covering this in this presentation today that a memo to uh, with the cia previous in the previous month had stated otherwise the robertson panel concluded that it's interesting that they noted that the investigating investigation of the foo fighters during the second world war found them as unexplained but harmless because that's when we really begin to look at that is during world war ii and that these things could be, it was a waste of effort to continue to try to explain every sighting. And we're confident that they could all be explained if more data were available. The panel members seemed uninterested in UFOs themselves. They were quite concerned, however, about the public dimension of the UFO problem. It's questionable why a group of scientists would express an opinion on a matter of national security, something wholly outside its collective expertise. At least it would be if these men were functioning as scientists. But in his Dolan's opinion, they were not. They decided it was possibly dangerous in having the military service foster public concern in nocturnal meandering lights. That's a quote from the Robertson panel's uh, conclusions. Therefore, it recommended instead, this is the panel's recommendation, an educational or training program as they quote, as he quotes it, targeted to the public to eliminate, again, a quote, the popular feeling that every sighting, no matter how poor the data, must be explained in detail. And the educational, therefore, program was therefore aimed toward training and debunking. And this is a quote, the debunking aim would result in reduction in public interest in flying saucers, which today 
evokes a strong psychological reaction. This education could be accomplished by mass media such as television, motion pictures, and popular articles. Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> and the panel did give it evidence that, you know, it did not receive, Blue Book did not receive all UFO reports. The reports text indicates that there were 1,900 UFO reports in 1952, but uh, Blue Book only reported on 1,503 for the year. So what are those other four, uh, what, what, 397 reports go? Right. So some were investigated by civilian agencies. There was a strong push toward eliminating, reducing the, uh, the influence of civilian agencies as well. And so at the conclusion of chapter four, Dolan says the Robertson panel, never intended as a scientific study of UFOs, gave the sanction to remove the problem, not only from the general population, but from the vast majority of military personnel. So where did it go? You know, that's their, that's the, what the panel as, and this is just prior to when Eisenhower is sworn in as president. So prior to his presidency, just immediately prior to that, under the last year, uh, the last literally days of the Truman administration, it is now removed from the provenance of the military and from the and, and generally just discouraged as a public discussion at all. Someone once said that presidents come and go, but intelligence agencies go on forever. Yeah. And it would seem to me that that because the problem problems couldn't be explained, that they had to be explained away for the public and potentially for part of the people in the military, but not so much so for people in the very upper echelons of the military and in the intelligence agencies. So that obviously some of these reports went to them and all of the research data, and they've been managing the problem for decades Yeah. without revealing to the public what it is they truly know. Right. And, and, and I'm sure I'll, I'll just be labeled cynical and conspiratorial, but it's very easy to believe because of the human condition, the human fallen condition that reports from governments, specifically the United States government, on certain issues are really just efforts to explain away what they can't properly explain to a reasonable satisfaction. And the real data and the real conclusions are given to people that, or groups of people that really do know what has happened or what is going on. Yeah. And I, I can look at, I think this about really everything from this whole UFO issue and Project Blue Book and Signing Grudge to President John F. Kennedy's assassination 
and I, I could name a few others, but I, I, I won't go down that, that rabbit trail, but or that rabbit hole, but it just seems obvious to me that when all of the facts can't be accounted for and that a reasonable explanation given, because the reasonable explanation would be an honest explanation. And honest explanations often re reveal an individual or a group of people's inability to do what it is they say they will do. So for example, if our if the Pentagon and our intelligence services and our armed services are responsible for protecting our country, the answer to the UFO problem must be that there's nothing here that is a threat to national security when they know that in fact that is not the case. But like, like parents who feel free, I guess, to lie to little children, <laughs> they just tell them what they think it is they're capable of of dealing with and the truth remains uncovered and hidden away it, this is it's it's an old story isn't it <laughs> mm -hmm, it is and, and it's I, an old story and and i think you know think about our current culture we talk about things that are when we talk about UFOs, UAPs, however you want to, whatever term you want to apply to the phenomenon, when we talk about that, we talk about it as if somebody must know exactly what's going on. We talk about it as if, even if that is not revealed, we talk about it as if it's not revealed because, well, actually, we don't know that somebody knows exactly everything that's going on. But let's say that that they do. But it's just not being revealed. Then the other, the other's not. There's another automatic assumption that comes after that. Well, then maybe it's not revealed because some feel, as a culture and as a world, we just couldn't accept what was there. That may or may not be true. Um, but that's that's the assumption that that that's where sometimes our thinking goes. So we go, we, we, we work through this assumption there, this, these assumptions that somebody must know, we just can't handle the truth, or alternatively that revealing the full truth would somehow compromise security for a nation or an organization or for people. Some, and of course, that may, that may be the truth. We work through other assumptions that say, well, our own research and development doesn't support the development of a kind of craft that behaves in the way that we see it behaving in right. reports. Those are all things that actually we can't know for certain. Maybe somebody does, maybe somebody does not, but, but we can't actually know. When you think about that content, when you think about that idea within the context of our current culture, we've actually been taught to believe in a sense that we can't know history as fact we can't know oh that's certainly the case now yeah we can't know history as fact that oh my goodness I, I have i do not believe that history is a good judge i don't it's simply because we can't access all of recorded history and because not all history is recorded and because you can't actually know what's in the mind of another person at the time that an event or something takes place so 
what a, because what a person writes down, I mean, they may put it all out on paper. They may not. Uh, well, it, it, it does assume a certain amount of intellectual honesty. Right, right. And, and so I think that this is something that has to be balanced, and that is if, if, if we can't know the truth about the history of the world from historians, then there's no point in talking about history at all. And, and this is where postmodernism is happy for all of us to live in that we can't, there really is no overarching narrative to, you know, the human story, whether it's in our country or some other or over the history of the world, because no one can give us an, an intellectually honest uh, account of what happened because everybody's writing from their own vantage point or their own self-interests. I'm sure that's true for a lot of people in the history of the world, but it's also not true for a lot of people in the history of the world. Right. It is not an abs. Yeah, it's not an absolute. And and I think that, that there are those who would put that forward, therefore, as a way to say you can't know that biblical history is accurate right. or theological interpretation is correct because you can't know these things. That's it's it's nonsense because there are people that's true who do write from their own perspective. There are many who do not. They just try to get it down there in terms of what they've observed or what they have or what they know. So that there has to be kind of a balanced approach to that, but balanced approach in our culture is not popular. What's popular is extremes one way or the other. So it's hard to, to to interpret those things. And I think when you look at something like the the UFO phenomena, that's why I maintain that the UAP report or the the uh, excuse me, the subcommittee or the pardon me, the the bill that came out of the order to create the UAP committee, which came out of I can't remember the bill now, but when that came forward it was with this idea of well we can only access a certain amount of data with more money we could get more data but we can't do anything without more money and i always thought it was mo almost like a budget proposal than it was an yeah. actual port of information and i think that we still deal with some of that even now dolan does a good job of at least documenting everything that's in print or mm -hmm. archived as 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 interviews and recordings he does a good job with that so, and you have to take that for what it is. But it is hard to know. You know, you can't necessarily know what's in, you don't, we don't know what was in Forrestal's mind. Did he really take his own life or did something happen to him? Right, right. We don't know what was in his mind. Yeah. So, we have to be careful with misinterpretation where those things are concerned and be careful with assigning, designating something as fact when really we can't know it as fact. But that's, that's all of that plays into not only what Dolan has recorded here, but in his second volume, because we don't deal with the second volume in this discussion, where he picks up after 1973 and goes into the, I think it's 91, is that right? Yeah, something On like that. Second, yeah where he covers a whole different set of data and uh, and information. 
sometimes sometimes all you can do is look at what's recorded and, and acknowledge what's said or written and say, okay, let's just go from there and see what happens. And that's that's hard for people to do. Unfortunately, the mind of God is the only person that knows the rest of the story. Right. And even whether history has been recorded, been recorded well and factually true. Right, exactly. I, I do think it's interesting that in our current, really our world culture, people in positions of authority, especially those in government, are so used to creating a narrative to explain something that is not true. That is to say, their explanation of what everybody experienced is not true. <clears throat> I would look at things like the you know TWA Flight 800 and I think some aspects of 9-11 and, and some other things. What has been presented is factually not true. Right. But people in, in, in government are so used to lying to people that now what we all know to be true and have known generation, generationally to be true since the foundation of, of, of human civilization, they're now looking to us and saying, well, that's not true. If you look at the whole, and I realize that we're going in a different direction here, but I'll just mention by way of closing that if you look at the whole gender debate, there, why, why is it being debated? Because now there are people in positions of authority that say, well, gender's not binary. It's not male and female. It's all of these other things as well. People have always been wrong about this, but now we've got the truth. And it truly is. You could just attach whatever adjective you want. It's, yeah. You know, but ultimately inherently sinful when human beings whether individuals or groups will not come to the truth that is evident to all people and it should be evident to all people well it shouldn't be necessarily be evident to all people but it should be evident to a lot of people that what is being reported is something that is real and genuine and is not fictitious even though some people do lie some people are some people do misinterpret but not all people lie and misinterpret and so it should be obvious that there 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 is to this day a reality to this this phenomenon that is not physical extraterrestrial but appears to be inherently spiritual i, I i've often thought or actually i haven't often thought but i've thought since this conversation that if we had had Radar tracking capabilities the day that a chariot came out of the heavens and picked up Elijah. That chariot coming and going back would have been no doubt been picked up on radar and clocked for a time at perhaps yeah. uh, appearing and then disappearing at perhaps a rate that's beyond comprehension like 7,000 miles an hour, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that, that's off on a tangent. And we all, it's funny, we often, in, in modern thinking, when you hear, when you read the story of the chariot, um, 
the conclusions that people come to about that are, well, that didn't happen. Yeah. It's just a mythological statement. Um, or based on based on the level of intelligence of people at the time, I think that's that's a. I just don't even know how to think about that. That's that's incredible, because if you you apply that level of thinking, that kind of analysis to trying to understand what pe- what you believe people intellectually were capable of at one time or another in history, you're really just talking about their. What you really mean is they didn't have the tech or the ability to develop the tech. But that doesn't mean they weren't intelligent. You know, they just didn't have the tech. So when somebody says, "Well," Uh, the story that you're at, yeah, I don't believe that happened. I think that was just a psychological misidentification. Or the ufologist would say, well, that was the only word they had to describe a UFO. Right. <laughs> oh, my word. You know, I, now, I suppose you, on the one hand, you could argue we're just as biased in some respect uh, one way or the other. But, again, a lot of my thinking when it comes to biblical interpretation and theology comes out of what we do know from history. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a whole set of topics we could go off of from that. But anyway, we we digress just a bit. But it's it's just kind of crazy. Maybe, you know, as you said, maybe a, a good subject for further discussion would be the Robertson panel. Right. And maybe the recordings of, is it Albert Chop? Was that his first name? It's Albert, right? Al Chop, yeah. Al Chop, yeah. Um, as some other, because that's, again, that's just something that doesn't come up in the general discussion of the topic. Dolan approaches it from a historical perspective and does a great job with documenting the post-World War II era through at least 1991. Right. So that whole 50 years in there. And... Uh, does a good job of bringing that all into the forefront. And of course, where you and I come at this is there is not only a physical aspect to this, but a spiritual aspect. In fact, I'd say even, you know, even with, even if you were to take something and identify it, just because something is specifically identifiable as military tech, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have spiritual ramifications. We've done some things in in understanding and research and development that have spiritual implications down the road or even now um, because we, as people, we do look for meaning beyond just is there all... I think most people do anyway, look for meaning beyond is there is this all there is to life? Now, there are some people say, yeah, that's all there is. Just do whatever with it and you're gone. I don't buy that. But there are people who live that way. And I would say even for people who take that perspective, either that there is nothing beyond death or that or, and for people who take the perspective that there is, regardless, there's a spiritual side to that. And... So the development of technology, it's both a product of our learning and our invention and our culture, but it also does impact things on a spiritual level. And in some cases, there is an, there is an inherent spiritual impact that goes beyond our understanding. Right. So 
Yeah. As much as art yeah. and leisure time are spiritual endeavors, so is the invention of technology. That's right. Yeah. Well, that's all for this episode of Posterity Podcast. Hope you've enjoyed a little conversation and rambling about Richard Dolan's Chapter 4 of UFOs and the National Security State. Thanks for listening.